Welcome, everyone, to It Simply Isn't Done, the Sermon Recap Podcast. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport. And I am Reverend Barry Petrucci. We are the pastors at Chapel Hill Church. And together we are the, the Irreverent Reverends. And uh, like the name would suggest, this podcast is the message from Sunday, where we share the scripture and then the sermon, and uh, we meet you back for some reflection on that message. There will be an opportunity to, if you look down in the notes, you will see a place where you can go directly to the reflection. If you already listened to the scripture uh, and the sermon, or if you just want to skip them all together and uh, just hear what we have to think about it, um, you can go there. We're happy you're here. We are indeed. First sermon recap of the new year. Which wasn't really a sermon recap because we didn't really do a sermon. Well, you kind of got into it a little bit at eleven. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I did. I did sort of get to preaching. Pastor's um, gonna preach, right? Well, we did uh, pastors unplugged and unrehearsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, week mm-hmm. two, yeah, on Sunday. We had a nine and an eleven. Yes. So we're glad to bring you a conversation about that, uh, but first we're going to take a little break so you can listen to the scripture and uh, and the and, questions and, then and the questions and the and the incredible answers, <laughs> and we'll be back after that. Mm-hmm. Today's scripture reading is taken from Isaiah, the 60th chapter, verses one through six. Arise, shine, for the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you, your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried in their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Iphah. All those from Sheba shall come, They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. This is a very tall chair and I'm going to have to publicly get in it, so. Thank you, thank you. Oh no. Can I spin you? No. (laughs) Good morning. We landed. Hello. It's all about grace. (laughs) Well, this morning, uh, we get to do the time-honored tradition for the second week in a row of Pastors Unplugged and Unrehearsed, where we answer questions that you all have. Last week, we had some kind of general theology questions, and this week, we asked you to consider or think about questions you might have about the church, the church at large, the United Methodist Church, um, this church in particular, what we might be doing. And then, of course, 
If there are other questions bubbling up, we would welcome them. And if you were here last week, you might recall that Deacon Pat asked a question at 1057. <laughs> and, that, and that little little old question was, what is progressive theology? <laughs> Since we talk about it a lot. So we thought we might start with that one just to warm us up and to get y'all thinking and then kind of move from there. So I have a few thoughts on this. Um, the, I, I taught on this here for one of our leadership breakfasts a few years ago. But I think there's some common misconceptions about progressive theology. Um, it, it does not align necessarily or, or really at all with um, progressive kind of partisan politics. So that sometimes trips people up. But there's some elements of what progressive theology looks like in congregations. The first one we talk about a lot here in all sorts of ways, and it's that progressive, theologically progressive congregations um, tend to put more emphasis on orthopraxy as opposed to orthodoxy. So orthopraxy is right practice, how we practice our faith together. Orthodoxy would be right belief. So many of us have encountered congregations where there is a specific belief you must adhere to to be a part of a community. Saying that belief, articulating that belief makes you a part of that community. Um, in theologically progressive spaces, uh, we have a lot more variance for a lot of different beliefs. There are, there are many beliefs we can all kind of live with. It's, um, there's, not a, there's not a test or a quiz. We're not a creedal church. So while we have the creeds as part of our church, we don't make you say them to join the church. There's not a creed you have to affirm to be here. And we really look at what does our, what does our faith look like in practice? How do we practice our faith? So that's a big difference. Um, another one I would say is how we orient ourselves in time. So in, in uh, theologically progressive congregations, we tend to consider and think about the present. What does God's justice look like here and now? How can we participate in it? How can we find where God is? What might that look like? In more theologically conservative spaces, a lot of the emphasis on time is, is what will be in future um, and what will be at the end. Where might you end up? What might the next life look like? And there's more of a focus on behaving a particular way because of what might happen then, whereas in theologically progressive spaces, we're kind of more, more centered in the here and now, we're more oriented to them. Um, I think another, one other element that I would lift up is how we understand and interpret scripture. Um, so we have a lot of, we understand scripture to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written by humans, almost exclusively uh, fallible people, right? Just people, um, almost exclusively men. So there's kind of a whole portion of folks that were kind of cut out from even the writing of scripture um, at, at a particular amount of time. We understand that God speaks through that to us and that there's relevance and meaning, uh, but we don't believe it is without error. We know there are actually typographic errors, right? We know now that the Red Sea was actually mistranslated. It was the Reed Sea. That kind of changes the story, right? So there are a few things like that where we, we kind of understand and interpret scripture differently, whereas theologically conservative spaces have a, have a more inerrant, without error, understanding of scripture. So those are three things I would lift to you all that kind of are ways to kind of look or differentiate. What would you add, Pastor? Well, Pastor, um, <laughs> no, I, I concur. I think one of the things that I would, that I would add that I think is, is important is progressive theology is 
inherently evolutionary. Mm -hmm. That is that we've got a high level of comfort with understanding the faith to be changing, that, that our world is changing, our faith is changing in response to that change in the world, um, that, that we respond to God differently as time goes, and God responds to our, us differently. In other pieces of the faith community, there's great um, adherence to a sense that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And while while we have no difficulty kind of holding that as, as this idea that God is monolithic, it is hard to hold it at the same time that we're holding God being fundamentally relational. Because in relationship, we're both growing. Uh, and scripture testifies to God growing and changing in response to, uh, to human activity uh, as well, in, in some cases actually changing the mind of God. So I think that would be consistent with progressive theology, yeah. the sense of evolution over time. For sure. I remember the first time someone said that, and I was like, what about like Jesus though? Because cha God, <laughs> God changed pretty quickly into a person. <laughs> So it's interesting conversation about what that looks like in other spaces. Okay, that was a little primer. What y'all got? Tanya is more than happy uh, to get her steps in um, as, she, as she has at the nine o'clock service. Questions about church, about the denomination, about changes going on here. Pat, you're supposed to wait until three minutes before we're done. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, can you tell us some things about the global church and the reason that they branched off of, of the United Methodist Church and how that might connect with progressive theology? When you say the global church, you mean the global Methodist church? Yes, the I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Barry spoke about this question first last time, so I'll do it this time, just to be fair. So uh, we're a United Methodist congregation. Um, the United Methodist congregations, the United Methodist denomination came to be in 68. That was four years after this church was formed. So we have often frequently been in evolution with, um, with what, uh, how we understand ourselves and, and our doctrine and our polity. So for a long time, as long as I've been connected to the church at all, we've had these particular questions come up about our discipline. Um, particularly uh, kind of centered around human sexuality, but that, that was really an issue that highlighted a broader issue, kind of about that orthodoxy and orthopraxy I was talking about earlier. So the church um, is undergoing this kind of protracted split. Congregations are leaving. There's this process called disaffiliation. Um, here in Michigan, I thought I, I got, got the stat earlier, um, about 18% of our churches have disaffiliated and, and most have gone to the Global Methodist Church, which is a more theologically um, conservative expression of Methodism. It is a, it is a newly formed denomination. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, Pat, does that help? <laughs> I don't know. What, what else would you add, Barry? Oh, I think that that's what we know at this point. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's a denomination that was formed in response to the reality that they anticipated uh, between, gotta remember the context of this was that uh, up until 
six years ago, the global United Methodist Church was about 12 million members. And that included Africa and the southern United States and other pieces of very conservative, Philippines. Uh, conservative places. And um, there was a sense that uh, among conservatives that they were going to win out. Uh, because this, this was, this has played out as a win-lose conversation from 1968, the formation of the church. Um, and, um, and what ended up happening was that the conservatives, in fact, did not hold the day as far as the, uh, the whole denomination. And the disaffiliation was, was initially thought it was going to be the progressive churches disaffiliating. Uh, and it ended up being quite the opposite. Um, and so most of the churches that have left have been on the more theologically and socially conservative edges of the denomination. Um, but they very much are playing catch up now on what, the, what their new denomination is going to look at, how, look like, how much it will copy from the United Methodist Church in terms of structure, uh, I don't know. But um, theology, I think they may draw heavily from the former Evangelical United Brethren Church, which was more conservative, the two denominations that came together in 1968 um, to be united, but never really, never really was. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that we, we, can, we can say some more about it in the podcast, uh, just commercial, we do have a podcast that we do every week. It's a banger, so you probably want to tune in. <laughs> Tanya, you got something? Looks like Sue KB. Hey, in light of that, um, I get an email from what's called Mainstream UMC, mm -hmm. and I think it's a not-for-profit um, group. Could you explain what their purpose is? Initially mainstream, so there are, there are like lobbying organizations within the denomination. Mainstream UMC is one of them. Initially their purpose was to try to hold together centrist factions um, of the United Methodist Church kind of with the group. Um, and and they, that's really kind of their goal of just finding where, where is a space for those of us that are left to kind of uh, move, move forward essentially. Um, they also, they stay UMC and a few other places have some resources for folks that were a part of a church that's disaffiliating who want to stay part of a United Methodist congregation. Um, but that's kind of their, they're one of many, many um, lobbying groups within the church that try to do some organizing around what we might look like. Because our polity is kind of structured very similar to the United States government. <laughs> we have lobbying groups within our denomination, so. Mm -hmm. And we know how efficiently the government's working, so <laughs> explains why we've had church troubles. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wondering, you were talking about us focusing more on orthopraxy. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. I just wondered if you would um, kind of talk about some of the ways that um, our congregation is practicing our faith and, and just explain in what ways you're talking about that um, as far as getting involved in the community and also personal, just how that all knits together, personal practice, community practice. 
of the faith. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think I'll just say a couple of things and then, and then turn it to Jeff. Um, the, the formation of the answer, I think, is important, is that we have held from the beginning of, our, uh, of, of the church uh, with John Wesley, we've held to, to two pieces that have been fundamentally important. One is personal piety, our, our relationship with God and what God is, is calling us to in our, in our own lives, building of our spirits, building of a, of a tighter relationship. Um, and social holiness is the other side of that. Social holiness is how we um, engage what God would have us do and be in the world to build a place that is more loving, more just, uh, more peaceful, hopeful. Um, those two are, are held together. And we've, we've always understood that the practice pieces are not things we do alone any more than the faith development things or, or things we do alone. Uh, and so we've engaged with others in, in doing uh, work, uh, works of charity and justice in the larger community. So with that, with that kind of background, over to you. <laughs> yeah, well, I think to make, make a distinction of my uh, previous answer, it was you know, uh, juxtaposing different types of, um, different types of theology. So, Orthopraxy, not meaning what we literally all do, uh, like, like, but ways of being together. So as opposed to other congregations, wherein to join the community, you might have to affirm a belief, um, and, and you must hold it, and, and there will be people that check that you adhere to it. The community will ensure you adhere to the belief. We are much more comfortable in a theologically progressive spaces with someone that would say, hey, I don't really know, um, I, I'm having doubts or I don't exactly understand my faith or this piece of it, but they're still willing to be in community with us and come forward and experience like the mystery of communion or go to a Bible study or engage in any sort of small group or volunteer with loaves and fishes. So I want to clarify that answer. I think you're asking, hey, what are the ways that we are involved in the community through the church? And um, we have a beautifully recently updated uh, website that you could check out. Under the Engage tab, there are all these sorts of ways. But I'm going to lift something we're doing that's a little bit new. Um, so I mentioned the strategic planning earlier. And part of that is we're reformulating a little bit of how we structure ourselves. So we had a team called the Faith in Action Team. And for a little bit, that team is kind of going fallow as we reformulate. Uh, but that does not mean ministry is stopping, right? We're not just going to stop ministry altogether. So we're going to have the same things we had previously in ways to engage. So you can go, you can volunteer at warming centers. Um, there are all sorts of ways you can engage. But for a quarter at a time, we're going to put a lot of focus into one particular ministry partner. And so like this quarter, we're going to focus a lot on loaves and fishes. Um, they are our, uh, they're our partner with us in the food pantry downstairs. 
Um, this year, they've seen an increase in food insecurity that they have never seen before. It is, it is unbelievable, right? So for a quarter at a time, there are gonna be all these different ways you can personally get involved with loaves and fishes, um, whether it's literally bringing your paper grocery bags or if it's volunteering in the pantry downstairs or volunteering like at the pantry at Sunnyside, um, giving particular donations of food or money. So like that's one way we're kind of lifting up of trying to kind of focus some of our energy as we figure out um, how we're gonna structure ourselves. We're gonna have one thing, one thing a quarter, one ministry partner a quarter, and those will kind of change and shift. So that's a, that's a, very, it's a very broad question. Um, and I just want another chance to highlight our website. Go check yeah, it out. Yeah, <laughs> it's a new website and it's much more, much easier to navigate. Uh, and if you have trouble with it, uh, Lisa Dursick in the, in the office is the one to talk to about that. I would briefly highlight something that I don't think a lot of folks know. One of the ways we understand ourselves to be in um, a, a right relationship or relationship, uh, nonprofits that connect with the space, use our space for free. Like we understand that to be kind of part of our stewardship and how we connect. So um, we have DBSA, Depression Bipolar Support Group. We have different, multiple scouting troops. We have a bunch of nonprofits that come and kind of use this space because we understand this beautiful building on the corner of Oakland and Romance to be an incredible resource. Um, for the community, so those are, I just highlighted a few off the top of my head, but there are a bunch of other nonprofits that use this space regularly um, as part of our understanding, our collective understanding of being good stewards in our community. Not everyone knows that. If you're not here on a Tuesday night, you might not see kind of some of the bananas things happening. Um, or on a Thursday night with KCC. There's a lot going on here sometimes. Balloting, by. balloting. We got, oh my gosh. we got a thank you. Lisa Derzik got a thank you. Got for, an award from, from the, the city, city of Portage. And so, well, I went alongside you, Lisa, but it was really all about you. Those are some behind the scenes things if you're not here kind of on random times you might not know about, but I think it's important that y'all know that um, our community is not just, not just those of us that gather on Sunday. All right, is there another question? I know Nancy has something, so if you want to wander that way, Tanya. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Close, closer, okay. Uh, I'm going to ask a question that I don't think you can answer. Set us up for failure, Nancy. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to is, answer it. Yeah, you know, this isn't Stump the Chumps, you know that, right? <laughs> I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, the thing that we were discussing about the divisions in the Methodist Church, and I got to thinking, now I have to admit, I grew up in a Lutheran church, so I do not know a lot about John Wesley, more about Martin Luther probably. But um, I am wondering what John Wesley would think about what's going on in the Methodist Church with the divisions, and then the other thing, I don't quite understand when you talk about church and theology, the delineation, the difference between conservative and liberal in the church. And like I said, I don't know if you can answer, but I'll let you try. What would John Wesley think? Uh, I think John Wesley would not be shocked John Wesley was dealing with massive changes in his own denomination. He 
was more than willing to start a splintered group that he, ne that he said he never intended to become a separate denomination, and yet uh, he took it upon himself to, to, uh, to make sure that bishops were, uh, were um, uh, appointed to the colonies and that those bishops had the power to, to make pastors for the colonies, which is pretty much what it takes to have a church. Um, so I don't think he'd be shocked uh, by what's gone on. Um, I think he would be upset that we've lost, that we spent a lot of time with yes. lost focus. Yes. Uh, we, we did not function well as a denomination in terms of the work we were supposed to be doing to help those he was more, most concerned about. I uh, had deep, deep concern for poor and working class people. Uh, and making sure that not only was, was the message of Christ brought, but the example of Christ was brought to them. So he would not have been surprised. Um, uh, we won't do the compare and contrast of John Wesley and Martin Luther right now. Um, what was the other part of that? Oh, yeah, I, you asked about conservative and liberal. I'm using, oh. liberal was kind of a precursor to progressive, so I would refer you to my first answer. You can go back and listen to it. Yeah, that, they, those are the differences that I kind of highlighted earlier. Um, liberal is a word. Um, all the words are limiting, right? Liberal, progressive, you know, none of them fully kind of get it where we're at. But yeah. those differences I highlighted in the first question that Pat asked, those are, those are really the differences. And, and they don't even fall along denominational lines. Um, frankly, a lot of them are geographic, which is in our country, which is really interesting. Conservative and liberal get pretty heavily weighted in politics. In partisan and, politics, yeah. yeah. And so uh, we want to be clear that, that um, we work hard not to preach partisan politics. Um, obviously, as people of faith, we, we impact the, the, uh, the political system around us, as we should. Um, but it's not central to what we're doing here. One thing I would, before Lisa talks, I would add about the John Wesley question, I, I think we get away from. John Wesley had a dogged um, practice and belief that, uh, you know, like make the main thing the main thing, right? So he was just, how do people get to know Jesus such that people can be liberated and their lives can be made whole? John Wesley was obsessive. Um, and that, that's really where he centered most of his time and energy. Um, the name Methodist was kind of a... a it was a slam. It was it an was insult because he had methods of how to do it. Like, hey, this is what I'm going to do. This is my schedule. This is my calendar because I care so much um, about people who uh, are oppressed, understanding what justice or liberation might be like through Christ. So he would be deeply grieved that we have spent so much time and money um, deciding how we are not going to be together yeah. anymore when that has been readily apparent for decades. I would, I would add that. I, and he was also kind of feisty, so I think I can say grieved fairly. Yeah. Sorry. Lisa? Lisa D. To get feedback. I, and part of my job in the office, often hear the anxiety from folks in the congregation about how the church has changed as far as there are people who view online, we don't know them in person, there are people who, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how to get in touch with someone. Um, could you explain how church community exists in a very online world as opposed to how it did a few years and decades ago? Ooh. 
Yeah, I think um, I was I was really surprised when we were looking at our um, kind of end of year numbers and looking at how many folks stream church. Right? We average 270 households streamers a week, a week throughout the week. Right now, just right now, simultaneously, but. That is a lot, that is a, large, that is a large number. And so we have some growing to do around what does digital ministry look like? What could that look like? Um, I, I think part of also what I would speak to as a pastor, Lisa, is that um, that anxiety is kind of a pastoral care issue, right? Um, the church has always changed, it has always continued to change, it, it has needed to change and has stayed the same. So there's some, there's some grieving Right, that, that we need to do uh, with understanding moving forward, the church will not be as it was. Institutions generally are going through big shifts and big changes. So um, I, I hear that anxiety and kind of respond that way. I mean, we also live in a new digital age and a new digital time wherein like if you, I was in the office not long ago where someone called and they asked me um, for someone's address because you get the opportunity to opt in if you want your information shared on Breeze or not. It is not a given that um, just by going to church with someone, you therefore are entitled to all of their personal information. That used to be a thing. That is no longer a thing in the day of internet privacy. And, and you know, we've had some issues that have made us kind of think that <laughs> and consider that and, and be in that place. So thankfully, I was just able to look that person up on white pages and say, hey, I, I can teach you how to do this on Google. It's pretty easy. <laughs> I can white page them, but I'm not going to go in and kind of use our, our church access to someone's information when they haven't expressly said you have access to it. Um, yeah, so, and that's, that's a shift along with a lot of other places and spaces and communities. We would prefer people to make relationships and share that information rather than being the arbiter of it. Um, but I'll, I would turn that question back to all of us and those of you that are streaming. How do, how do we build this so that it, there is, there's a sizable community online and thinking through how do we foster and nurture that community um, and, and be a part of it. And sometimes those folks are here every once in a while. Sometimes they prefer just to stream. We have folks that are states away um, streaming right now who are part of, part of this community by virtue of our streaming. So we have, we have some growth edges to do so that it's not just feeling like you're witnessing a church service that's happening, but you're a part of it. Yeah. What would you say, Barry? I love this question. You know, one of the taglines for John Wesley was, uh, the world is my parish. And I think what happened in COVID was awful, right? And what happened in COVID opened our eyes to the possibility that the walls are far less important than we ever thought they were. That what a community looks like uh, is something we actually have to be intentional about and think about. How do we come together? One of the things I've been working on here for 23 years has been to get us to build a culture of small groups. Y'all are resistant. <laughs> Y'all are resistant. Uh, and we get a really good small group going and it becomes big. Do you want to split to help get two new groups going? Oh, no, no. We like us the way we are. That's a challenge. When churches were born in neighborhoods, right? Uh, which is how most churches were born. When they were born in neighborhoods, they built B 
because of the connections that were made in those neighborhoods. You live on my block, you work with me, we bowl together, you know, whatever it is. We now have an opportunity to connect with folks electronically who, you know, we certainly have this group that's stumbling on us or hearing about us and coming to worship. But we need to find ways in which we can stumble into spaces that are not ours, where we go to websites that are uh, of interest to us, where we build relationships that are about something else. Maybe it's building relationships with, with folks who are working together in the community on folks who are unhoused. And that uh, we do that as expression of our faith. And maybe in the process then, folks come to Chapel Hill. But, but, it's, but it's, it's an invitational kind of thing rather than everything must start when somebody walks through the doors of the building. So I'm feeling myself getting into preaching mode and voice. So I won't, <laughs> I won't put but but the, the, the deep reminder here is that there is a whole world of folks who deeply need relationship with Christ and with folks who are willing to be in relationship as human beings who are struggling with a, with a world that's a, that's, that's a mess. Uh, and there's all kinds of ways we can do that. And in the process, be invitational here. Um, and we've got, we've got people in our conference that are really doing some great leadership work here. It's, it's one of the things that as I, as I move from Chapel Hill, it's one of the passions that I have moving forward because I'm, I'm an old, old white guy that uh, is, for my age group, is probably better tech, technologically than lots. And I really want to do significant work about how we build those bridges, bridges between the electronic world and the uh, bricks and mortar church. That help? The other thing I would say is we have no idea how many people are behind those numbers. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know how many people are, are in a household. We, we, would love, we would love everyone to fill out connect cards. Lisa and was yet, not a plant, I promise. We yeah. did not and, know and she was yet, going to ask these and yet, and yet people will do what people are going to do, whether, whether we want them to or not. Amen? Mm -hmm. Does anyone else have a burning question before we move along? All right. Nothing about appointment. Well, you're all good. Mm -hmm. Cool. We, we answered that a lot. Um, yeah, if you have any more, you are welcome to write them on your Connect card. And there's some we're going to, we have some follow-up to do on the podcast. Um, there's some folks that submitted some questions we'll talk a little bit more about. All right. And lo and behold, we are in fact back. Here we are. So, week two. You know, this has become a kind of a Chapel Hill tradition that got started way back in the early days of my ministry. Uh, Sue Petro and I started it as a, as a way to uh, be open to the questions of the congregation. Um, and, uh, but also, frankly, to give us two weeks of non-preparation of sermons. Yeah. And, um, and at the time, people pretty much thought we were 
a little bit a little a little bit off our rockers uh, sure. for doing this um, but you know it's been enjoyed I think by the congregation and and by me and uh, and so with two two weeks in and, and uh, I mean it's not your first time doing it but no. just wondering how you how did you feel about it yeah um, I was talking to my husband afterwards and he remarked um, like oh it's really brave that you all do this and I had not really considered that because it never seemed optional um, or or I <laughs> or I didn't yes have... you will do this um, well and I really uh, want to model and appreciate um, chances for that kind of open dialogue and feedback and transparency and for folks to understand how our brains, you know, work a little bit in real time. Um, and it is, I will say, while I don't think um, it's brave, you know, perhaps in the same way that he meant it as an extreme introvert who, you know, very much that would be a little anxiety producing, I think, for many. But I, I do think it's brave to let our words kind of live out there and let people interpret them how they will, which that's different a little bit than a sermon that we get to spend hours and hours and hours on. Right. So just that part of trusting, um, trusting the grace of the congregation when we occasionally maybe misspeak or, um, you know, don't have all our thoughts and kind of you know, a linear order, which is how I like things to have some sort of order. They never do when I just ramble. So, I, th- I think it helps people to experience something from us that's that's fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. What we do um, in worship on a typical Sunday in in the preaching time is proclamation. Um, and proclamation has to do with biblical interpretation. It has to do with taking it from that text into uh, a, a current state, in how the world is right now, how we are right now. Um, but it's also calling people to action in some way. The, the questions uh, that we deal with for Pastors Unplugged are generally informational kinds of things. They want to yeah. know something about our how we understand theology or how we apply it uh, or how we're doing this, that, or the other thing in the life of the church. So it's more informational. So I think I, I, I find it helpful for people to feel the difference between those two. Yeah. Well, and also I, I don't think our answers or, uh, you know, I, I can speak, I think for both of us at this point, our answers are not different in that forum than they would be one-on-one. And frankly, a lot of those questions, I we have witnessed each other answering them <laughs> to individuals. So it's really nice to get an opportunity um, to have someone ask a question and to hear, you know, murmurs of concurrence of like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm curious. And then to be able to say, hey, you know, here's here's what I may or may not know about this particular topic, um, just as a matter of accessibility. Um, and I think, yeah, leadership modeling, that kind of transparency, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of because we have no idea what questions are coming. Um, and it's being streamed and it can live on the internet forever. Um, oh, I forgot about that. Now you're making me scared. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, yeah. like the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's those are kind of my initial thoughts. I like those opportunities and I, I hope it... Um, plants in people, particularly folks who find this to be a little newer, like, oh, 
I can talk to my pastors about this and they have a particular role in this community. Um, and you know, I have a particular role in this community. So yeah, we, we are not the only answer givers. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. In all things. <laughs> so, do you have any favorite questions from yesterday that particularly you want to do some following up on? I know we had some questions that we can get to. Maybe we want to start there. Your call. It's dealer's choice. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I do think, um, I think based on two, um, two different comments, you know, one that was a question that was kind of a follow-up and, and one someone brought up afterwards, I think it would at least be helpful for me to clarify a little bit about what I what I mean about our use of language regarding uh, progressive and conservative and all of that. Um, we talked, you know, like Deacon Pat, who is a seminary trained deacon who is well aware kind of of what the term of art progressive means, asked us to define it a little bit. And that was at 1057 on December 31st a.m. So like, we were like, yeah, we'll get to that next time. So I kind of jumped in without much of a preface. And I forget um, when we're when when I'm talking about that, and I think when we're talking about it, kind of small p progressive Christian, you know, like progressive conservative, they're they're individual and kind of discrete schools of thought, and there are more than just progressive and conservative regarding theology. They're kind of like these individual bubbles that exist, and churches tend to find themselves striving towards one. We're humans. So we can never fully fit into an abstract thought bubble. If that makes, I don't know if that's making sense, but um, we tend to view them through an American political lens, which exists in this space of there only being binaries, right? So you're either conservative, right? You're either to the right or to the left, or you're somewhere in between. And when we do that, um, I think it limits other potential options and it makes us consider things uh, and, and see them through our very unique, very specific cultural lens, which is not what I intended. Um, and I, I offer that to say not everything exists in a, in a binary. Not everything exists with only two choices. And for whatever reason, culturally, like we tend to love to view things in binaries. Um, and even a spectrum implies the existence of a binary. And I think sometimes we have to realize, oh, this is kind of something entirely different. Say some more about that, uh, because I think that I think that's confusing to folks generally that that a spectrum implies binaries mm-hmm. at different points within that spectrum. So it doesn't it doesn't eliminate the binaries. Yeah, a spectrum does not eliminate binaries. If you think about it, there is one axis, right? And if we're looking at the American political system and how we choose to often define it because we have this two-party system, we often choose to define it as like Republican, Democrat, and then like far, you know, far right and far left as, uh, and those are, there are discrete endpoints and there are, (laughs) there are ways to exist within that. Even within our own country, there are plenty of people politically who don't really fall into the definers of either of those, right? They don't fall within the existence of that spectrum um, they might be far light, far right in one area and far left. In it. it just doesn't, that's not always the most helpful tool, a spectrum, because a spectrum still means there's, two, there's opposites, right? And if there's two opposites, there's two options. Um, I know a lot, not a lot, some of my non-binary friends will say, hey, 
some some non-binary folks feel like they might be in the middle of a spectrum between male and female, but the thought of a spectrum still implies there are only two options. And folks are saying, I'm not in the binary at all. I am not in that binary. I am not one of two options. I am something uniquely different. So I think that's a helpful concept for us to even consider. Um, and just naming like language can be limiting generally. And I bring this up because there are, uh, like our congregation have folks that vote all sorts of ways. We're a purple congregation, right, in terms of that red and blue kind of, that's not the, that's not the point uh, regarding how we understand ourselves theologically as a church. Well, and that's, that's a big deal and why it's confusing. Uh, yes. I, think, I think often folks think that we're kind of doing a bait and switch. Uh, oh, we, we've stopped talking about liberal and conservative so now we're using we're using words that feel softer, like progressive, um, as a way to kind of slip it into the conversation. We're really talking about something fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a political conversation. It may have political implications, as as virtually everything Jesus said had political implications. Um, you know, he he died <laughs> yeah. at the hands of Rome and. You know, the, the political implications were there throughout. Um, but when we're talking about progressive, we're talking about a, a viewpoint for, for understanding our relation to God, God's relationship to us as, uh, as, as, a, as people of faith as well as, as, as a world. So we're talking about this, this at multiple points um, because as much as we may individually be concerned about how to apply our faith to the political sphere. It's not our fundamental issue as people of faith. It's not our. Or, it shouldn't be our first orientation. Ab- absolutely, yeah. um, because our allegiance is not to the nation. Our allegiance is to God. Mm-hmm. And when we when we when we confuse that, we get into all kinds of trouble. And we're seeing it in the political sphere right now. We're see it in, see it in the religious sphere right sphere right now. Uh, when we confuse those. So I think we're trying to be pretty clear about that. And I'm not sure, uh, even out of the podcast, that that this is going to this is gonna be an ongoing conversation because we live in a culture um, that, is, that is inherently binary in the most unhealthy of ways. And one of the things we've discovered is why we, in one moment, we might, we might think the polarities are clear. Mm-hmm. We have in the last 25 years, pushed the edges of those yeah. binaries out to the more extreme to the right and the more extreme to the to the left. For sure, especially regarding our political understandings. Um, I think uh, f- it is helpful for folks that kind of, and, and I'm, I need to figure out a better way to communicate this, but who have had any background in philosophy to consider kind of the progressive conservative and liberal is actually a a totally different thing right so progressive churches and liberal churches are not the same they have different understandings um i i was worshiping in a congregation that i i think is aspirationally liberal and they actually have a pretty tight circle on what people are allowed to believe right they folks in that congregation needed to be um needed had to affirm lgbtq um leadership in every way in order to join that church Right. No, that's that's an element of orthodoxy, and that is a that was a church that would kind of more define itself as liberal as opposed to progressive. Sure. 
I just offer these things to say it's not it's it's kind of hard to talk about um, and it's it's branching a few zones up from how we interpersonally interact but in abstract thoughts and that gets a little more challenging to chat about anyway it, can... it, it does when, and, and as soon as you take it to application it kind of goes bonkers because we're humans we're human beings yeah. yeah and there are people within this church that fall along all sides of of every you know most spectrums that can exist and spectrums that don't exist <laughs> Yeah, and, and frankly, as long as we keep talking about this stuff and, and offering it up in prayer, I, th- I think we're okay. It's where we try to concretize or set, mm-hmm. set, our, set, our, set ourselves in stone you know, with a position uh, where we get into trouble. And, and progressive works pretty hard you know, on the faith to not do that. Yeah. Yeah. About, about there being an evolution and they're trying to figure out how, to, how do we have space for everyone but put some boundaries around what our behaviors look like yeah. and how we, how we practice and how we do life together. Yep. So anyway, I, I, you know, now that that's clear as mud, um, <laughs> I have more thoughts on that if anyone is kind of curious and I'm sure Barry does as well. We talk about it frequently. Absolutely not. My bucket of thoughts are, is empty now. I have nothing more to give. Okay, well, see you next week. All right. <laughs> All right. What else? Yeah. What was your What was your favorite question? Um. You know, I um. I I don't know. I hadn't. I thought I thought we did some good catch up on church. You know where we are as a as a denomination. That uh, mm-hmm. some of that needed to be done. People still kind of holding questions about where we are as a congregation and uh, denomination. It's very important for people to have a sense uh, of what is unmovable. Um, mm. and, and it's hard, right? Because mm-hmm. we're people of faith and it's always movable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't have, can't have your grasp too tight. Yeah. We talk about adaptability a lot and I, and I would have liked to have more time to talk about about how that is a, a mark of faith that I don't have to presume that what I think or even what I know right in this moment is what I'm going to think or even know in the next moment um, because something new has been revealed. God has been present in a new way. God has been messing with me as pottery mm-hmm. and I'm being shaped into something, uh, someone that, that is responding in, in a new way. Yeah, you you bring up a really interesting point because I think our culture does not appreciate that at all. Um, does not make space for people to grow, change their minds, say I I have new information about this. Um, yet that is fundamental in our understanding of the Christian faith that God changes us. Yeah. Right. So it's it's an interesting kind of place that we don't allow. Like culturally, we're like, oh no, you're a flip flopper. And it's like, well, well, yeah, I know more, and now I think differently. Or I had a different experience that shaped and changed how I understand things. Yeah. And, and people who have said, yes, I, you know, I am a Bible-believing Christian, and, and uh, uh, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, and, and talk about God never changing, well, that is not, that's not a very good reading of Scripture because Scripture is pretty clear yeah. that God does change. And as much as we change in response to God, God changes in response to us as mm-hmm. well. Um, which can be horrifying for people who who have been raised up believing that the converse is true. Yeah. 
Um, but I find it to be, if God is fundamentally creative, how could, how could God not change with us? Yeah. And with the circumstances of, of, of God's own creation. One that, I mean, again, goes to our comfort with adaptability. Yeah. Right. Are we, how comfortable are we understanding that our God is a God that seemingly, from our best understandings, has changed, right, throughout time, uh, such in the creation of, you know, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Perfect example of the fact that God changes. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's, it's hard for us to kind of hold on to. And I think part of this is our job, right, and our training to kind of talk about this, this kind of theological stuff that I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure many folks can, you know, uh, spend time on unless they're very intentional about it. And it's our job, so we, we obviously are. But hopefully some of these conversations can bring some light to, you know, to the intentionality behind it. Yeah, and, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not just kind of a thought game. No. I mean, this has really important Practical implications for how life. we apply, yeah. how we do life. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I found a, a lot of folks um, will be like, yeah, I don't think I believe that, right? But I'm not sure what to replace it with. And and so that's an interesting part of uh, conversation and how we grow and evolve together. Yay. Well, we've got a few extra leftover questions, so cool. I'm going to read them for us. Through the years, huge cathedrals have been built to, quote, the glory of God, unquote. Even in modern times, churches have tended to be what I call ornate and big, though some newer churches are smaller in size. We are not sure where this form of worship started, but we question its relativity. Is there precedent in the Bible? What are your thoughts on this? So it's the edifice complex, right? <laughs> um, you said the edifice complex. The edifice complex. That. Um, yeah, is there precedent in scripture? Sure. I mean, um, God did not want a temple. And yet, the people built a temple. Yeah. Uh, you know, and somebody else funded it, but (laughs) 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 we'll, we'll we'll leave that without comment. Um, but I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a real mix between the the community of faith and uh the nation uh mm-hmm. that that built that uh the first temple the road the uh solomonic temple get my get my temples get, your in, temples get my right, temples in order <laughs> um somebody will correct me that's good uh, but yeah the 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 buildings were understood to be built to the glory of god and so it was important early on that they be the biggest and the best and be able to seen be seen above all other buildings in fact many municipalities had laws that you could not build a uh, a building higher than the the tallest steeple mm-hmm. um you know we saw what happened in paris when when notre dame burned and you know how what a crisis that was for france i mean it was certainly a crisis for tourism it was also a crisis because that had been sort of the pinnacle of yeah. of what it meant to be a, a city tied to a faithful history, even if it was not relevant in their in their current history. 
So, um, you know, look, we've, yes, we've always done this. Thankfully, churches uh, became far more practical in building buildings so that there were community assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, when this building was built in 1996, um, they uh, did a lot of work in how are we going to make space that's um, most practical for the way in which we use it in the larger community and and it continues to be used in that way. So it is, it's an asset for ministry more than uh, a daily reminder of this is an amazingly beautiful building that's done for the glory of God. We understand ourselves to be gifts to the glory of God more than we understand the building to be yeah. the gift to the glory of God. Well, and I think, I don't know, this is maybe a soft counterpoint. Um, space is important. Having space is important. Um, what you do with that space is important. And I think how we, um, how we shape space uh, can help what we intend to do, like what the purpose of that space is. So like for, um, you know, we have a beautiful sanctuary. It has stained glass um, and it's kind of set up in, in a particular um, way. It's pretty flexible. We don't have pews or anything. Um, but that space helps us to kind of mark or carve out that there is something countercultural about what we're doing. This is not like a space you enter everywhere else. This is this does not look like your home. Like this does not look like Meyer, right? This this does look set apart in some way. Um, I think, uh, at least for me, and this this won't apply to everyone. Some people are like, yeah, I'm fine, you know, whatever. But I I think having um, a particular space shaped in a way to help us worship helps us worship. Right? Sure. And, and that part of it is important. Um, I, I don't know that I would say the building itself is built to the glory of God, but built so that we can glorify God. That's maybe kind of a different uh, take on it, but it, it helps us get into the right headspace um, for, what we're, for what we're called to do weekly. Um, and like I think to your point, there, there are some beautiful big old churches, uh, particularly in New England, uh, because buildings couldn't be higher, um, you know, they would have justice-oriented ways of understanding. So they would they would take a big old clock, you know, and they would face it towards the factories to say, guess what? You have to let people out at this time, and we're going to ring the bell, and we're going to let them know. It's time for them to leave, and you cannot abuse them any longer. So churches are also interesting because they they are different and, and can kind of cast those um, visual physical representations of, of what uh, snippets of God's justice might be like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what it necessarily means, but it strikes me that, you know, as, as, as we travel the world, um, there are lots and lots of tours wherever you go that will take you through, um, temples, synagogues, mosques, churches that are no longer or only marginally functioning as worshiping communities. They've become museums, they've become... um, Pilgrimage sites. Pilgrimage sites, they've become uh, um, gift shops. (laughs) Uh, Some have become breweries. Um, 
and yet there's still something ineffable about the space. Yeah. That it, there's something disquieting. You know, mm-hmm. we went to the the Gaudi Cathedral in uh, Barcelona, Spain, uh, which is still still under construction after I think we're up to 90 years, something like that. And it's an amazing work of art. It's being funded by everybody and their brother. I have no idea what the amount of money is, but it's it's a work of art. And you walk in and it, it is an experience of the ineffable, which is, mm-hmm. that's not a bad thing. Yeah. It, it, it is to say... Um, it is, it is to beg the question, to what end? Yeah, when does this become an idol in and of itself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When does it stop pointing us towards God and become the thing? Right. Yeah. And those are good points. Yeah. Huh. This is uh, another question, somewhat related to the one before. If Jesus were to come to earth today, would he spend his, her time inside the church buildings generally or be with needy people, quote, outside? Unquote. I say yes. Yeah. Um, I think we should be thoughtful and realize that some that we might classify as needy actually do uh, worship here and that we're not as economically secure as we might like to think as a whole congregation, um, which is uh, for some folks that's fascinating because they think that being uh, financially insecure looks a particular way. That's right. Right. And that's not true. And um, I don't know of a place Jesus wouldn't go. Right. I mean, I'm not sure. Jesus literally went like you name kind of a, oh, Jesus is all over the place. He's with the religious elites in temples. He's teaching in temples all the time. He's teaching synagogues all over synagogues. the place. You know, he's hanging out in the porticos. He's hanging yeah. out in, 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 in the healing pools. He's hanging out in the bars. He's crossing borders, places uh, you know, he, he should not be. He goes yeah. to eat with with the tax collector. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think you know the I think the the attempted point of the question uh, I appreciate. I think the answer is far broader than the questioner anticipated. Yeah, like would Jesus worship at this? Church? I don't know. If Jesus would worship regularly at any church, like you know. And yet, how can we even ask ourselves? You know. <laughs> Um, it's interesting because we worship Jesus, right? So yeah. it, it becomes a little complicated. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I appreciate the intent of the question. I, I just think it needs to be broadened. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would kind of turn it uh, back, not just on the questioner, but on all of us. Are we going to the places where we think Jesus would go? Yeah. Or do we think they're where the needy people are? They're the bad side of town. Are we afraid to be there? Yeah, we definitely have we definitely have this image of what needy looks like, mm-hmm. um, and you and I both know pastorally that um, in a in a predominantly white, predominantly middle class church, uh, people do their best to keep up appearances, and the appearances may or may not reflect the economic realities yeah. of the households that worship here, mm-hmm. and and that's a great thing. I mean, it's not yeah. a great thing that we feel we have to do that, but it is a great thing that folks are here because they want to be in community, they want to worship, and do not want to be excluded based on on their uh, on their economics. And so, it's why 
we are very prayerful and mindful about how we do fundraising, how we do stewardship work, mm -hmm. um, so that there's not guilt associated with folks who are not in a position to give financially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We don't send out bills. We do not. No, a lot of paperwork. <laughs> Alright, here's another one. The Bible stories were not written down initially, but a lot of word of mouth as we understand it. Then it was written down in its first language. Um, this one says, then translated to Greek, then to other languages. Then it's been translated by many people over the years and maybe even changed by a Pope's edict question. The point is, um, we do not take the Bible literally. Good, bad, or not unusual. Which that's my new, I'm going to do that for good, bad, or not unusual. <laughs> Good, bad, and different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, we talk about this frequently, and if you've been in a Bible study with us, um, you might, United Methodists, we understand scripture to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written written by fallible humans. Um, and it, some of the stories, yeah, were, were word of mouth, um, particularly a lot of the Hebrew scriptures. You know, Paul's letters weren't, right, they were. They were written down, some of them by Paul, some of them by people who said they were Paul. Um, but we thought, someone thought they had merit over the time and they got put in there. Pretty common practice at the time. Yeah. So I have a hard time saying that. Pseudonymously. Pseudonym right? Pseudonymously, I think. Dang it. Remember when I was going to have that in a sermon and I asked you how to pronounce it and then I got scared each time I preached it. So I didn't pronounce that word. <laughs> that was going to be my secret, but you know. Uh, well, Sorry. you know, transparency, wait, wait like come, I said. Way to come clean. You know, I'm, I'm a person. I, I somebody, read words, somebody I don't will, know how they're all Somebody pronounced. will probably correct my pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, um, there are actually, uh, there are a lot of scriptures in the New Testament. Almost all of them were written in Greek initially. Um, that's how they were written. A little bit in Aramaic, but mostly Greek. So it's rare for something to have been translated into Greek. Um, everything was translated into Latin for the Septuagint. I think that's perhaps uh, what the asker was thinking of. But yeah, yep, these have been, we understand God to be able to speak through even, uh, you know, humanity's written attempts at, at capturing the relationship we have with God, our struggles, what we're called to do, um, and, and having, having it being canonized from a particular period of time and passed down to us through multiple translations and languages today. Um, we do not, I, I'm not sure anyone could take the Bible literally just based on the context of the world that we live in, right? There are some, um, you know, some communities that try to get close, but it's hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love talking about this, and if you're in a Bible study with either one of us, you'd hear us talk about it more than you probably want to. Um, but, but what I find fascinating is that most of this outside of the letters of Paul, um, for sure, but most of this began in oral tradition, storytelling in family and community units, and the faith was passed down that way. Song, And yeah. when the faith is passed down in... Uh, story and poetry and song um, it it is not encoded in the same way that it that it is once you become part of literate society once you become part of literate society it becomes much more important that something become copied 
in the right way because yeah. this copy doesn't look like that copy. And so people that copied the manuscripts did it uh, as, as a job or a particular calling, like the Essenes, a Jewish sect uh, living in, in the desert of Qumran back in the day where we get our Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and, and the downside of that is that we encode it in such a way that what becomes important is the words. And we began thinking that the book, uh, the canonized collection of, of, of books within the book of the Bible, we came to understand these as being the words of God. And it's really was not understood that way earlier, and it really mm-hmm. was never understood that way within Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Um, and in Christian community, we talk about the word of God. And so I will often say that this is the word of God, not the words of God. Yeah. So that we remember that we're looking at a, um, a big picture, and we get ourselves all in a knot about, the tiny uh, specificity of differences of opinion, uh, we probably are heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, well, I think people forget too, our our society over the past couple hundred years has become obsessed with fact. Uh, and fact does not always contain truth, right? And so ancient peoples, they weren't <laughs> they weren't less sophisticated. Um, they weren't like, oh, I don't know how these things come together. God must have made the world in seven days. It wasn't that. It was poetry. It was trying to capture a truth about God. Um, scripture, you know, is not seeking to be a scientific textbook, but to talk about who God is and who we are. Um, and even the Gospels. Uh, ancient biography is not a newspaper article. Um, that's not the point, right? The point was to communicate capital T truth about Jesus. What is the good news of Jesus? And that evolved. And that's why there, you know, there are differences and discrepancies within the gospels themselves. We can hold them in tension because that's not the point. That's not the point. And we miss the point when we try to like, Oh, okay. How do we, how do we reconcile all of this together? Rather, can we live with the fact that some of this probably cannot be reconciled and that's not the most important question, right? Was Mary actually a virgin? I don't, I don't know or care as much as what does the story tell us about who God is and who we are? I agree. Oh. And, and we're in strange <laughs> times, right? Because for, for so long, we were caught up in a scientific model where we were seeking facts and we're having, to, we're, we were trying to apply yeah. that same mindset to, to a broader truth. Then we got into political season that's still pretty young, but we're still doing the same thing. We're, kind of a we're, post-fact we're, society, too. We're, 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 we're now in a place where it facts don't matter. Yeah. Uh, and people can boldface say, I didn't say that, or I didn't do that, or that didn't happen, even though we have it on tape, even mm-hmm. though everybody saw it, even though um, it, 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 is, it is a... Um, irrefutable. Irrefutable. Yeah. It, is, it is irrefutable. As fact, but it gets spun. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of on the on the reverse side of this conversation mm-hmm. in a very weird way. Yeah, because facts do matter, but but knowing the difference between fact and truth is critically important as we as we talk as people of faith. Yeah, and I I hope I didn't communicate that facts don't matter as much as no, you um, didn't. 
Yeah, that's not that was not the point of the biblical authors. Right. They were not focused on let me write down every little little detail so much as how can I tell the story of, of God and God's people? And story has a little more room for art and and metaphor and hyperbole um, because that we have always understood that to tell us important truths. We have always used art to tell important truths. Like I don't care if Robert Frost had two paths to go down. I don't care if that wood was real. You know what I mean? Like, I know. Does does it ultimately matter if those two paths existed? No, because the art tells us the truth of understanding, right? Yeah. What, what is it to mean to take the road less traveled by? Scripture is very much the same. It's not less sacred or holy. God doesn't speak through it less because it is art. Yeah. I'm well, preaching. Well, yeah, you are. And, and, <laughs> And, well, I mean, for me, this is why the United Methodist Church finally added in to our uh, to our, uh, our baptismal covenant that one of the expectations uh, of those that that join the community is that you testify and testify is a story. scary, mm-hmm. scary word, but it means tell your story. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, the highlight of yesterday was when one of our one of our new folks at Chapel Hill told the story mm-hmm. of how. Uh, how they got here, and the incredible importance for him of being received with love, a community that accepted his son who happens to be gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has not happened everywhere. It has not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good, that's a good bridge to talk a little bit about our next sermon series. Huh. You know, as Barry mentioned... And uh, I get to kick it off next week. Uh, us, us sweet little Midwestern United Methodists, we don't always love uh, talking about our uh, about our faith story. We find that to be a little uncomfortable. It's like, you know, you don't talk about faith or politics. I'm like, well, we're in the church, so maybe you can talk about faith. <laughs> maybe you can think about it. So one of the vehicles we're going to use um, to hear some stories of, of how God is working in people's lives is music. A very natural place for us to understand how we connect with God. And um, we'll hear some folks' stories about how God works in their lives through music, hopefully as a way of opening us up to understanding how God works in all sorts of places in our lives. PCH playlist. It'll be awesome. It will be. I believe in music. I still don't know that song. You've, you've sang that a few times. I, yeah. gotta, I need well, to listen. Well, if I sing it enough, you'll, you'll know it. <laughs> Mac Davis, come on, back in the day. Well, fair enough. Maybe you can do that for us. That can be your testimony. Okay. Friends, thanks for listening to uh, this long and uh, generously, the I'll say, long varied, and winding road. Bum bum Is this gonna get flagged for copyright? Probably not, because it's nowhere near the actual. <laughs> Hey, we're going to catch you next time. <laughs>